Well, welcome again and good morning, everyone. My name is Joseph. I'm one of the pastors here at Deer Creek. Thank you so much for being here with us uh, on this Memorial Day weekend. Also, this is kind of cool and pretty exciting. I want to welcome specifically those who are joining us. Let me spike the camera here. Those who are joining us via live stream. We are live streaming this worship service for the first time ever. And we have folks from all over the country who are worshiping. Yeah, let's, let's give it up for our folks who, yeah. That's pretty incredible, right? That we have people all over the country, some even out of the country who are live streaming this and watching this and joining us in worship right now. Uh, I think it's also equally incredible uh, what you chose to wear. Can't believe you're wearing that to worship, but wow, that's, uh, that's a bold move. So maybe... No, we are very grateful uh, for this opportunity and very grateful for every single one of you here. So let's do this. Before we enter into our time of teaching, let me pray for us and uh, pray for our time together. Father, we do give you thanks this beautiful and this good day. Lord, this is the day that you have made. Help us to rejoice and to be glad in it, Father. Thank you for every single person who's gathered here, men, women, children, families who are joining with us in worship. Lord, uh, we know that you are present here with us. Your spirit is present in our lives. And Lord, we pray that we would see the fruit of that spirit in our lives and through our lives as a result of this time together today. Lord, we pray for brothers and sisters around the world who are also worshiping today, uh, different countries, different languages, but all recognizing and all calling you King, Lord Jesus, laying our lives down at the foot of the cross to follow you. Help us to do that more fully today. Lord, forgive that we do fall so short. Lord, forgive me, I fall so far short of who you are. And yet in all of this, Lord, your your grace abounds. Your grace is just lavished on us. And so thank you, Lord, for that that gift of grace and your great love for us. Guide us now and through this time of teaching. Be our teacher today, Lord. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to consider with me for a moment just how utterly bizarre it is what we are doing here right now. Has that thought ever crossed your mind? This, this, thing of, this thing of worship, this thing of, of worship services, these things that are happening all over the globe, different languages, different cultures right now, this is really, really weird. And some of you, that thought has occurred to you maybe on a daily basis whenever you meet here, and like, yeah, I've been around Deer Creek. It is pretty weird. These people are pretty weird. <laughs> You've thought that before. Now, some of you, maybe the thought hasn't crossed your mind, so let me break it down for you. Here we are on a perfectly, perfectly good weekend morning. We only get a couple of these a week, right? Some of us wish we got a few more of these a week. But one of our weekend mornings, a Sunday morning, a beautiful Sunday morning, even today, a holiday Sunday morning, and hundreds of us, our families, our friends, uh, coworkers, people we know, our neighbors, we've gathered here together for this thing called a worship service. It's kind of weird. Of all the things we could be doing right now, many of you, well, all of you, and you as well, who are joining us uh, on your computers right now, have chosen to do this. Now, that's not the weirdest part. Some of you get here early. Did you know that? Some people get here early. They make coffee for others. They welcome people. They go downstairs. They pray and prepare children's lessons. That's weird. So not only do people give up their time on a perfectly good weekend to do this thing of worship, they give up extra time so other people can give up their time for this thing of worship, if that makes any sense, because it really doesn't. And then we, got, we gather in here where almost all of us sit in chairs facing a wall. And then music starts to play and we project words onto a wall. And then we start to sing at a wall. Where else in life do we do that? Karaoke, maybe? Uh, And take me out to the ball game. Those are the only two examples I could think of. Maybe you could think of others. That's a little strange. 
Then these strangers come around with baskets and they hand out baskets and people do something nuts. They give away perfectly good money as part of this thing of worship. Are they being extorted? Are they being coerced? Are they feeling well? Why would people do this? That's nuts. And then maybe the the cherry on top, you sit and you listen. We sit and we listen to some average Joe sit up here or stand up here and talk for 30 minutes, 45 minutes. If it's Dwayne preaching 60 minutes, right, (laughs) for a long time. And then we leave and we go and we do the same thing week after week after week. That's really weird. That's sort of bizarre that we do this thing called worship. Now, some of you, depending on your background, uh, where you're at on the faith spectrum. Maybe you didn't grow up going to church and you're relatively new here. Thank you for being here. Maybe you joined with a friend or family this weekend and uh, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, amen, brother. I haven't been around this very much. This is really weird. And you want to know what, Pastor, are you talking about? It doesn't make it any less weird. So can you move this thing along? You were heard. I totally understand that. Now, others of us, maybe on the other end of the spectrum, right? We, this is part and parcel who we are, who we've always been. Well, it's Sunday, what do you do on Sunday? Well, you, you go to church and you go to worship and you gather with other people and that's just what you do. And it's never occurred to us for just a moment to pause and think, huh, wait, why do we do this again? Wait, why are we even taking the time and the money and the, money and the energy to invest into something called a worship service? Now, wherever you fall in that spectrum, maybe you're on the extremes, maybe you're somewhere in the middle. I want to do a couple things this morning. I want to affirm the idea that, uh, you know what, worship, worship is weird. Oops, give that away. Worship is weird. Uh, this is a very odd thing. It, it's made even more weird by the fact that we do it so differently depending on where we're at. I mean, there's a church literally right across the street, and you can, get, you can bet that their worship service and their gathering looks very different from ours right now. And yet hundreds of millions of people around the world right now have said, we recognize there is value in this and it is worth building our lives and our time and our finances and our families around. Very interesting. So no matter where you fall in that spectrum, I want to affirm, yeah, worship is a little weird if you really think about it. It's a... I, I like to compare it to maybe trying to explain Halloween to someone from Europe. Have you ever had that conversation? It's bizarre. Yeah, so you're telling me is that in America, uh, you guys dress up in silly costumes like superheroes and Mickey Mouse, and then you and your children, you go knock on strangers' doors, and you ask for candy. Oh, wait, no, you don't, you don't ask. You threaten people for candy. You say, give me your candy, or I will, uh, you know, I will harass you and annoy you and prank you and do all these terrible things for you. Well, yeah, when you say it like that, it, it, it does feel pretty weird. So if you've ever felt worship is weird, if you've ever wondered why we do this, you're not alone. It's a very normal thing to wrestle with, to wrestle with and to think through. Now, I also want to suggest to you, affirm that this is a little weird, but I also want to suggest to you, no matter where you are at on that spectrum, that worship is weirdly normal. That I actually wholeheartedly believe, and I actually wholeheartedly believe that the Bible teaches that worship is part of our DNA as human beings. That we are in the fabric of our beings made to worship. I actually believe the Bible teaches you have never met a non-worshipper in your life. Every single one of you is a worshiper. And you would say, duh, I'm at a worship service. That makes me a worshiper. I would say beyond that. I would say your coworkers are worshipers. Your friends are worshipers. 
Your children and your parents and your spouses are worshipers, even if they have not been to a religious service in years, even, though they, even if they have not cracked their Bible open in years, I believe that the Bible teaches every single one of us is a worshiper. And so that's the idea that I want to unpack for us this morning, because if you just give me the benefit of the doubt for a moment, what if every single one of us desires to worship something? What if that is part of our creation? What if that is part of how we are sewn up as men and women and children? What if we were actually created to worship? Well, if that is that universal, if this idea of worship is that universal, as weird as it is, if it is that normal in our lives, that means something for us. That means understanding the heart of worship. That means understanding the hows and the whys and the whos of worship is of vital importance to us as human beings. It is as important as knowing that you're having a heart that pumps blood throughout your body, having a brain that handles your neuroprocesses. It's important as uh, seeking companionship or meaningful labor. It is vitally important for us as human beings, if it is that universal for all human beings. Now, there's a reason I believe this. There's a reason I believe that the Bible teaches this, and it's even wrapped up in the language around worship in the Bible, uh, even to, to, to simplify, take the New Testament, take the New Testament alone, the, the section of the Bible that was written uh, just after the life, the ministry, the death of Jesus, and written during this time of the early church of people who had known him and done life with him and witnessed his miracles. Well, they talked about worship and they recorded the words that Jesus had said about worship. Now, Greek is a language. It was, it was the language of the New Testament. It's a language just like English, right? You have uh, synonyms for different words. So we have the word worship, but we also have the word praise and reverence and extol, right? We have lots of different words, synonyms for this. In Greek, there are lots and lots of different words for worship. By far, the most common word for worship in the New Testament is this word proskuneo. This is very significant. This is Jesus' favorite word for worship. This is the New Testament writer's favorite word for worship. This shows up all the time, 60 times all throughout the New Testament. And it shows up in tons of different contexts. It shows up in rich contexts and poor contexts. It shows up in the spiritual elite context and the spiritually non-elite, uh, the, the plebeian context, however you want to word it. It shows up in men conversations and women's conversations. It shows up everywhere. And this word is so specific and so unique to this idea of worship because of its literal translation. Because I would, I would never have guessed this word means what it means. Proskuneo is translated as worship, but it literally means to kiss. Specifically, it means to kiss towards something. All right, Joseph, you lost me. That's, that's really weird. That's really, that's, that's really weird. You're making this even weirder than before. Why, why does kissing, what does smooching have to do with worship? Well, in our cultural context, we don't really equate the two very much. We don't think about it. In the Greek world, though, this idea of proskuneo, of kissing towards something, was built into the fabric of their society. You see, when someone would swear, swear fealty to the Roman emperor, they would get down, they would get on their knees, and they would bow towards the Roman emperor, and they would kiss the ground towards the Roman emperor. They were recognizing his authority, they were recognizing his importance, they were recognizing his supremacy, and they were pledging to build their lives around the Roman emperor, Proscaneo. But it wasn't just for the upper echelon. It was regional, regional governors. If you needed a favor, if you had a, a legal dispute, you wanted to take something to someone, you would proskuneo towards the governor as a sign of respect. You would pay homage to them through kissing towards them. It was an act of worship. You would recognize their authority over the situation you were in, 
and you would submit. You would build your life around that thing. This was true with your parents as a sign of respect. You would kiss towards your parents. This is definitely true of your in-laws. If you wanted to be in good with your in-laws, you would kiss towards your, everyone should want to be in good with their in-laws. So you kiss towards them. You proskuneo. Proskuneo means to recognize the value, the supremacy, the importance of something, and to build your life around it. And all of a sudden, this word that shows up 60 times throughout the New Testament starts to take on different meaning for us in our cultural context. Because I would go on a limb to say every single one of you can think of the things that your neighbors proskuneo, the things that your coworkers proskuneo, that your children proskuneo, that they bow down to, that they kiss towards, that they recognize as supremely important and they build their lives around. Have you ever had a coworker who was so, so obsessed with getting ahead? And it was promotion, it was advancement, it was all about having this ambitious drive to climb the ranks. And they put that drive up on a pedestal and boy, they were willing to do just about anything to pursue it. They were willing to work extra hours. They were willing to work unhealthy amounts of extra hours. They were willing to burn bridges relationally. They were willing to go around people and over people. They were willing to go through people because of the value they put on advancement. They proskuneoed advancement. They, they bow down to it. They kiss towards it. They see it as, as important, and they build their lives around that. Do you, have you ever known someone who, uh, with a relationship, has built their lives around a particular relationship, what this person thinks of them, how this person responds to them. Uh, oh my goodness, it's been five minutes and they haven't texted me and I'm so worried. What if, they, what if there was someone else? That's proskuneo. That's recognizing that something is important or valuable to you and you are building your life around it. Let's take it out of the abstract. You, do you know anyone who proskuneos their home? Their whole life seems to be built around having the nicest home and the cleanest home and the best home and showing off their home or their car. They're obsessed with the car. What about sports fans? You know that word fan is short for fanatic, right? Have you ever known someone who puts supreme value on the success of their team and they will build their lives around it? They will, miss, they will not miss the pregame, the game, the postgame. They'll read every article about it. They will spend time, energy, money, and they will invest even their emotions into how that team is doing. Go YouTube angry sports fans sometime and you will see countless examples of people who are kissing towards a sport, a team, because they value it and they are building their lives around it. Very easy for us to look and say, this person bows down and worships this and this person bows down and worships this. What do you, Proskuneo? Do you have things in your life that you put up on a pedestal that you think are supreme, that you think are of incredible value and you build your time and your money, your finances, your relationships, even your emotions around those things? You're worshiping. You're, cross, you're proskuneoing. You are kissing towards this thing. I believe every single human being worships because we recognize things that are valuable and we build our lives around them. Now, before you think there's some massive guilt trip here, I wanna, I wanna make it really clear. This is very normal, right? This is even natural for us. One, one could make the argument, and I, I think the Bible does make this argument, is that worship of great things is instilled into us. 
Right? We're, we're actually created to desire great things. You know, if someone came to you and said, hey, I got a Slim Jim or I've got a uh, medium rare filet mignon from Ruth Chris, which one do you want? Yeah, you're not snapping into it, right? Yeah, you, you want, yeah, I'll take the filet mignon. Or if someone says, hey, I have this amazing sauteed homegrown vegetables or I have, you know, a cup of dirt, you know, what, you know, what, what are you going to, I'm probably not going to settle for the cup of dirt. No, we, we're sewn up. We are wired to want great things. There's nothing wrong with that. That is part of our DNA as well. We are sewn up and uh, created to want great relationships and great jobs and great sex and great food and great friendships. We are created to desire those things. The writer of Ecclesiastes talks about this. If you know anything about Ecclesiastes, it's Ecclesiastes chapter three. It's written by uh, a guy named Solomon. And, and that's a little pejorative because he wasn't just a guy, he was a king, King Solomon, fabulously wealthy. Fabulously intelligent, handsome, strong, powerful, utterly miserable. And if you've read Ecclesiastes, you know just this almost toxic longing he is going through and this, this desire for more and for more and more. And he just can't seem to be satisfied by anything. He writes these words in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, verse 11, uh, that speak to this desire for great things. And I'll have it on the screen behind me. You can follow along. He says this. He has made everything that he's talking about God here. God has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Solomon, writer of the book of the Bible, is describing the reality that God has put this thing of eternity, this longing for significance, this longing for the infinite, this longing, this hunger, this desire for great, significant, incredible things in our hearts. We are created to have that desire, to long for great and beautiful and good things. But the second part of that, he says this, he says that no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We, it's almost outside, it's outside of our kin. It's outside of our, our range of understanding to know exactly how these things piece together and how these things in our lives, how even to, to process through these desires. Now, if you've ever longed for a great thing or you've started building your life around a great thing, he says that is very normal. We are created to desire eternal and great things. And yet there's something very toxic and very dangerous that happens through this act of worship, this weirdly normal thing of worship. We as human beings start to take good things, even great things, food, relationships, money, and we make them God. We put them in a position of supreme value, of supreme importance in our lives. And all of a sudden things get really, really sideways when we do that. Paul, uh, who's a early follower of Jesus, uh, writer of uh, more than uh, about half the New Testament, he, uh, he writes these words in, in Romans chapter one. He says this, you can follow along on the screen. Uh, and he's just been talking about the ways that we, we long for eternity, we long for the immortal, but we've, we've, in many ways we've supplanted, we've replaced the immortal, the eternal with, with lesser things. And he says this, they, he's talking about people, just, just human beings, people, they exchange the truth about God for a lie the truth about the supreme, the truth about the eternal for something that was not eternal, was not supreme, and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. This is where worship 
gets sideways. This is where we often stray as we process through this thing of worship because we hunger for great things. We desire great things. We want great things. And yet we make those great things God. We put them in the position of supreme value in our lives and we let everything else burn as a result, even ourselves at times. Someone who becomes a workaholic, someone who becomes an alcoholic, someone who uh, becomes an approval-holic, someone who is building, building their lives, we, all of a sudden these very good and great things become toxic to us when we put them in a supreme position in our lives. And so that's my next observation on worship. Because of this tendency, and I think this is a, also a universal tendency for worshipers to get it wrong, it's this, is that worship is easy to get wrong. It's easy for us to get this wrong, but you see a parenthetical I have on there. But not for the reasons you might think. You see, if you've been around the church long enough, and you've been in Christian circles long enough, you've been in Bible studies long enough, you might start rolling your eyes here. Oh boy, here we go. Here we go. Here's, okay, here's one pastor who's going to say, here's how we worship, and this is the right way to worship, and here's all those other phonies and all those other people out there, and they're constantly getting it wrong. Worship's tough, so we got to do it exactly this way because this is the right way. Have you ever heard these arguments before? Well, we are Presbyterian after all, and worship needs to be dignified, it needs to be orderly, it needs to be peaceful. So why is the music so loud every week? My goodness, I can't hear myself worship. I'm not even sure God could hear us worshiping. Can we turn the music down? Real worship is peaceful and orderly and quiet, contemplative. Are you kidding me? Have you read the Bible? David danced through the streets in his underwear worshiping God. We need some more of that up in here. You all clap for that. I'm, gonna, I'm taking notes. I'm taking notes of who clapped for that. Okay, maybe, maybe we don't need to go that far, but real worship is about passion. It's enthusiasm. Do you think the Israelites were worried about noise when they're slamming cymbals together and playing ram's horns? We need passion. We need enthusiasm. We need guitar solos, smoke screens, ribbon dancers. We need, you know, really, we crank it up to 11. Right? That's what real worship is all about. All in. Guys, why are we arguing? Are you kidding me? Like real worship, this is a family. Church is a family. We need to have our kids in here. We need to all be singing songs that we know because it's about participating together as a family. And I think the best way to do that is to just play songs on K-Love, right? Because if you're a Christian, you listen to K-Love. That's what you do. So why, why don't we sing more K-Love songs? Oh, gag me. Are you kidding me? You like that fluff on Caleb? Real worship starts with real substance, and that means hymns. That means we need words in our songs like transubstantiation and superlapsarianism and anti-disestablishmentarianism. I want old rugged cross. I want amazing grace, a mighty fortress our God. I want the hymns that Jesus used to sing because that's the good stuff, the traditions of our forefathers. That has meat, not this milk, not this stuff. That's what real worship is all about. Wow. All of you are missing the point. Real worship isn't about what we do on Sunday mornings. Real worship is what we do out there. Real worship is out in the world. It's the way we love and serve our neighbors. That's what real worship is about. I can't believe you people are getting it wrong time and time and time again. Real worship is about love. Who's right? All of them. All of them are right. If all of them are right, if 
the triune God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who loves us, who sacrificed for us, who calls us to himself, if he is the object of that worship. All of them are right. And if he is not the object of that worship, none of them are right. And that is very, very, very easy for us to forget. That is very easy for us to forget. It's my maybe next observation is it's easy for us to get wrong because worship is more about who than how. We get how as human beings. We get systems. We understand systems and protocol and to-do lists and checklists. We love how as human beings. Who's murky? Identity, who I am, who you are, that, that's murky, that's fuzzy, that, that's hard to understand, that's hard to wrap our minds around. It's even maybe especially true for the invisible God. God that we don't see and touch and talk to verbally on a daily basis. That can be really challenging for us. Now, hear me loudly and clearly, and don't, don't leave here today hearing that how doesn't matter. I'm, I'm not making that point, right? How, how does matter? The, spot, the Bible speaks about how. How does matter? We can have good and healthy, honest conversations around how. We, we can't just, you can't do everything as, as worship, right? We're not going to start, uh, you know, kicking puppies to the glory of God as part of worship in here, right? That's not, yeah, that's, I'm, that was a joke. I'm not, I'm not advocating for that. I don't kick puppies. We not, we're not going to do that, right? How, how does matter? And who always supersedes how when it comes to worship? And that is very, very, very easy for us to forget. God, I think in his incredible grace and his incredible love and his incredible uh, knowledge of us, and our weakness, I think he, he wants to remind us that worship is more about who he is and less about how specifically we are doing it. Because at the end of the day, if God is not the object of our worship, I am. I am. Or, or, or my preferences and proclivities and persuasions, you know, everything that I'm about becomes the object of my worship. And all of a sudden, barriers and disconnect and frustration start to abound between my relationship and others, and, and I would say even my relationship with God when I am the object of worship. It's so fascinating to me that when God even laid out, you could say the Ten Commandments is a list of hows, right? Is how are we to live? How are we to do these things? How are we to, uh, to reflect who God is in the world? You can make that argument. It's fascinating to me how he starts the Ten Commandments. Because at the end of the day, the most important section, I think, of the Ten Commandments is none of the commandments. It's what he says right before he gives the Ten Commandments. Oops. Jenny, would you reset me to the uh, Exodus passage? I broke it. There we go. Right, what, he, what he says right before the, uh, the Ten Commandments, he says these words. God spoke all of these words. And he said, I am the Lord your God. This is who I am. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. 
This is very simple, so do not miss this because this is of profound importance. Before God gives his commands, before he issues decrees, before he describes this is how you relate to me and this is how you relate to other people because that's what the Ten Commandments, if you've ever noticed this, the first four commandments are all about how we relate to God. And the last six commandments are all about how we relate to other people. So when Jesus is summarizing the law, love God and love people, he's not just spitballing, right? Matthew 22, he talks about this. He's he's summarizing the 10 commandments. But before he walks through the how of any of that, God makes a particular point of reminding his people, this is who I am. This is who I am and this is actually how I relate to you. Because before he gives a single commandment, God has set his people free. And you want to know what? That's weird. That in the standards of the world, is very, very weird. That's certainly not how I would have done it. If I'd been God? Are you kidding me? Look, Israelites are in slavery. That's a bum deal. Here we go. I got, I got a whole list of commandments. I got more than 10. Here's a list of commandments. Let's see how you do with these. Let's see if you can handle these. You're only going to worship me. No idols. Uh, don't misuse my name, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Keep the list going. And I'm going to, you know, we'll do maybe a trial run. Here's my commandments. Let's see how you handle these commandments. Let's see how you do with the how before I move a muscle or budge an inch to help you. Every other religion on the planet says, prove yourself to be deemed worthy. Every other religion on the planet says, this is what you must do to be saved. This is how you must perform. This is what you must seek to become enlightened, X, Y, and Z. This is what sets the God of the Bible apart from every other religion or philosophy on the planet. I am the Lord your God, and I have rescued you. I have rescued you out of sin and slavery and darkness, and I have come to deliver you. And I want out of this thing that of who I am and what I have done for you, I want that to shape your lives. I want to shape your lives because I love you and I want to see you flourish. I want to see great things for you and for the people that you come into contact with. That is what separates the God of the Bible from every other religion and philosophy out there. It's not how I would have done it. It's beautiful. And in the same way that the God of the Bible says, I am going to rescue you out of sin and slavery, the God of the Israelites said, I'm going to take you out of slavery. Jesus Christ does the exact same thing. He comes along And he says, while you are still enemies, when you are farthest from me, when you were the least deserving, I will lay down my life. I will lay down my life. I will give my life to rescue you. This is who I am. This is the God I am. This is why who is so much more important than the how. Because who God is And what he has done is actually the much more important question that the Bible speaks to than, so what should I do with my life? And how should I do these things? And why am I here? Those are important questions. They're not not unimportant. But who God is and what he has done is of paramount importance when we talk about this thing of worship. Worship is weird. And it's, it's weirdly normal. We, we, we can recognize that people all around us worship, and even ourselves, we worship all the time. And it's easy to get wrong because we want to put the spotlight on ourselves or our own preferences or the things we love, and we get things upside down and sideways. And worship is so much more about who. If worship is not about who, is not about bowing down to the sovereign God of the universe, you're turning God into a butler 
who is there to take you to what you want and what you want to do. And that is a very dangerous and a very limited way to live. The God of the universe is the only one who can satisfy this internal, desperate desire that we have for meaning and for significance. Now, as we, as we wind down here, I, I want to I at least give us some signposts. I want to give us some opportunities to, to wrestle with this question of worship. Wor- worship is a huge topic. We probably should do a series on this uh, soon. Maybe that'll be on the, on the horizon. There's so much more that could be said. But for now, as we talk about focusing on who God is and not just the how, I, I want to give you guys three words. I want to give you three words to take out with you throughout this week. Because these are three words I think you're going to come across. Actually, I know you're going to come across this week. And I want them to be signposts. I want them to be reminders for you to think about who God is in those moments. You ready? Okay. The first one is this. There we go. First one is this. Wow. Wow, we use this word a lot in our church these days. Wow, this is the theme of our Easter. You will say wow at some point this week. You want to know why I think that? Because we live in a beautiful place. Have you noticed that? We live in an incredibly beautiful place. Do you ever find yourself just saying wow without even thinking about it? Wow, that, look at that sunset. Wow, look at the mountain range. Wow, look at the trees. Wow, look at the flowers. Wow, look at life all around me. We, we even show you pictures of the mountains during worship. We show videos of the world. It's that beautiful of a place we live in. You are going to say wow at one point or another this week. And my encouragement and my challenge for you is don't stop there. Don't, don't settle just for what you can see in front of you. In those moments, when you say, wow, look up. Look up to the one who made it. Look up to the who who created this thing that you are enjoying. Don't, don't be like that person you know who's dreamed of seeing the Rocky Mountains their whole life and they, they fly out to Colorado and they hike west and they get to the base of the hogback and say, this is it. Wow, look at this incredible, these incredible mountains. Look at how beautiful and majestic this is. And you're thinking to yourself, you dummy. You don't even know the half of it. There's something so much more beautiful, so much more powerful, so much more incredible, but you've stopped short. Don't settle this week for what you can see. When you see a beautiful sunset, pause and look up. Give praise to God. And when a friend or a coworker does something particularly kind for you and you say, wow, I, I didn't deserve that, look up. And remember the grace of God lavished for you on the cross, the way that God gave his life for you. Yes, you didn't deserve it. And he loved you so much that he gave everything to make things right between you and God. And when you're enjoying a a nice candlelight dinner with your spouse and you say, wow, this is really incredible. Give praise to God because he is the giver of every good gift. Worship is easy to get wrong because we always just want to settle. We want to stop short. Don't stop short this week. When you find yourself saying this word, wow, look up. Don't settle for what you can see. Word number two, it's a little counterintuitive. Oh, uh, as you, uh, let me just jump past that. Sorry about that. Word number two, how. This is a little counterintuitive. This is a little you know, outside the box. But when you find yourself saying how this week, I want to encourage you that that is an opportunity to worship God. At some point this week, I think you will come across a moment or a situation or a relationship and you're going to say to yourself, how in the world do I get through this? How in the world do I get out of this? How in the world am I going to do this? That actually, I believe, is an opportunity for you to worship. 
It's counterintuitive because we, I don't really feel like worshiping when I'm going through a hard situation. I don't feel like worshiping when I'm arguing with my spouse. I'm saying, how am I going to stay committed to this marriage and how can I even put up with this person? I don't feel like worshiping then. And when I get the test results back and they are not, not, not what I was praying for or hoping for, and I say, how is my family going to get through this? I don't feel like worshiping. And when you lose your job or you get reprimanded at work, you have massive tension in the workplace and you say, how in the world am I going to get through this? I don't feel like worshiping God. That actually is an opportunity for you to worship. Did you know there's, there's whole sections of the Bible that are they're praise songs, but they're, they're praise songs of lament. They're, they're praises of how. Jesus even cried out one of these on the cross, a very familiar passage. He said this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. It's a familiar psalm of lament. Psalm of lament. A psalm is a song of praise, but I'm lamenting. I'm sad. What's going on? Jesus, in that moment, probably did not feel like crying out to God. Probably did not feel like reaching up to God in worship. And yet, these are some of the most beautiful opportunities. And what's so important about these psalms of lament, what's even important about this psalm is it doesn't stop there. The strength of the eternal God does not rest on your feelings in the moment. And that is very important. Psalm 22 continues the very next verse. Yet, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. In these moments of how, when you say how this week, remember, remember, remember the way that God has been faithful in the past. Remember the way he has blessed you and taken care of you. Remember the way he has provided for you and your loved ones. He has done so. Look forward with hope. Look forward with hope. Look forward with the hope of the cross because even a terrible, awful, wretched situation where someone is crying out, how, how, God, why, why, God, why, turns from death and ashes to beauty and life. Because that's the gospel. That's the good news of the cross. <laughs> Hebrews even talks about this. Hebrews chapter 13, that sometimes we're called to, to, to offer a sacrifice of praise Sometime this week, I bet you're going to have the chance to offer a sacrifice of praise. Because sometimes it's a sacrifice, isn't it? You don't feel like it. You don't want to. It doesn't feel good. It's not easy. But we offer a sacrifice of praise because we remember what God has done and we look forward to with hope what God will do. The last word, so we have wow, how, probably guess it. Last word is now. This, this time is significant for us now, right now, Sunday mornings. As weird as it is, as strange as it is, there's something special about this time where we gather together in worship. Quite honestly, one of the most important things we do when we gather in worship, when we sing these songs, when we hear sermons, when we pray together, is what we are doing is we're remembering. So interesting, the fourth commandment, when God says, remember the Sabbath. Why would he say remember? Because we forget we forget who God is. We forget the fact that we need to rest in him. We forget that we find our identity in him alone. And we start turning to all these other things throughout the week. Many of us, myself included, will walk out these doors. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to forget. 
We're gonna forget who God is. We're gonna forget what it means to rest in him. And so we need reminders. We need to remember who God is. And that is what this gathering is about. Now, Jesus did this. Luke 4, verse 16 says, Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Corporate worship, gathering with others, worshiping God, studying scripture, that was a custom of Jesus. It was customary for him. Look, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you probably should at least strongly consider the things that he did and incorporating them into your life. I made that point in a youth talk years ago and I had a smart Alex student say, yeah, well, Jesus, you know, rubs spit and mud on people's faces too, so should we do that? And I said, only if it's your siblings and only if you're curing someone of blindness. So those are special. This was a regular rhythm of Jesus in his worship of God. It ought to be a regular rhythm for us as well. I wonder, is worship a priority for us? Is it a commitment for us? Or is it, is it sometimes an inconvenience? I get it. Sometimes it is an inconvenience. It's, it's, it's that thing of a sacrifice of praise that we're called to do sometimes. Sometimes it is a huge sacrifice to be here and to gather. And yet it's of profound value. We even see this in the early church. This is just so interesting for me. Uh, this is from the book of Hebrews. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to encourage Christians, writing to encourage people. And he says, let us consider how we may spur one, other, one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching, not giving up meeting together as someone in the habit of doing. Now, people weren't giving up meeting together because softball season had gotten really crazy or, you know, the PTA meetings were getting really heated or, oh, you know, just a lot of good stuff on TV right now. You know, they were giving up meeting together because they were being threatened. Hebrews is written in this realm of persecution. It's written during a time when the church was being persecuted. People stopped meeting together because their lives were at risk. Their loved ones were going to jail. And yet, here's an exhortation to not give up meeting together. Because we need to be reminded that much. Because being reminded of who God is and doing that with others, that we may spur one another on in love, is of that paramount importance. I know this is a weird thing to think through. I know it's a weird way to plan your summer. Build a summer around worship. Personal, private rhythms of worship, because worship is certainly that, but public gatherings of worship. There's something unique about gatherings like this. And if it's not here, let it be somewhere else. That's okay. But this time is very important. It shapes us far more than we think. And so as we, as we wrap up, I, my encouragement to you is I, I know this is weird. I know gatherings like this. I know serving and giving and listening to sermons. I know this is weird. This shapes us. This forms us. By no means do the things with the greatest impact on our lives make, always make the most noise. And you, you're going to not remember this sermon next week, much less next month or next year. And you probably won't remember next week's sermon or the next. And yet these things are shaping us. They're shaping our eternal destiny because of the who that we worship. The gracious God of the universe who rescued us out of sin and slavery has invited us to know him. And that is why we worship together. Pray with me. God, thank you for this day. Thank you that we have this chance, this opportunity to worship. Uh, Lord, I recognize that, that there are people here who are who are making that sacrifice of praise. Things going on at home or at work, 
things going on in their hearts, their heads. Lord, that make this very difficult even to be here right now. And I pray, God, that you would remind them who you are. You would remind them of your ferocious love. You would remind them, God, that you are near. You are not far. Lord, for all of us, as we head into the summer, as we make plans, as we dream and scheme and we do all these these things, Lord, help us to do this all in light of who you are. Remind us, God, remind me, as I am so prone to forget. I pray, Lord, that we as Deer Creek Church, I pray, God, that we would be a people who remember who you are. I pray, God, that we would be a people who remind one another who you are. Here on Sundays, throughout the rest of the week and everywhere in between. Thank you, Father. We love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.